Do be seated. It's my privilege to be with you this morning, and it was so good to hear prayers being led for people around the world. Uh, We were working with Baroness Cox recently, and she said she goes to many churches where people don't seem to pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters across the world. And having come from Jerusalem just this week, you're so aware of what many people are going through. And we often have pastors from different countries who've been in prison for their faith again and again. But when you meet them, their faith is so strong. They're an absolute inspiration. And one of the greatest groups coming to Israel at the moment are from Indonesia, where in spite of the persecution, there's a huge explosion of faith. And there are now more Christians in Indonesia than the whole of Western Europe put together. And that's truly wonderful, especially where they're being persecuted. Let's turn to our Bibles and read from Romans chapter 8. And we'll break into the passage at verse 5. I'm always conscious of the words of Spurgeon to his students when I read the Bible because he said, Be careful how you read the scriptures. It's the only part of the service you can guarantee to be inspired. Verse 5. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death. But the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace, because the sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation But it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. There's the phrase we're thinking about this morning. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we might also share In his glory. Amen. A small boy was taken to church for the very first time 
and it was his local cathedral. And he went with a spirit of anticipation, and he felt totally amazed as he looked round. He was awestruck by the vastness of the building, the high ceiling, the massive pillars, the stained glass windows. It all caught his attention when suddenly a man in a white flowing surplus came from behind one of the pillars and he just suddenly appeared. And this boy in a stage whisper that could be heard all over the church said, Mummy, is that the Holy Spirit? And we smile at his response, you know, but there is a sense in which we ought to expect to encounter the Holy Spirit whenever we come to church. But it's so easy, isn't it, for any one of us just to slip into church and never sit and quietly pray, God, please come by the power of your Spirit and impact my life and the life of this congregation. So he expected to meet the Holy Spirit when he went to church, and so should we. Well, you're beginning a series on the Holy Spirit, and I thought it would be good just to do a short introduction on who the Holy Spirit is before we look at some passages in the Scriptures that talk about being led by the Spirit. Let's take those three words, the Holy Spirit, and they teach us three important introductory lessons about the Holy Spirit. First of all, he is personal. You still hear people talking about the Holy Spirit in terms of it instead of him. Talking of the Holy Spirit as an influence rather than a person to be encountered. And after a service, sometimes people can say, what a wonderful atmosphere we had in the church. It would be more appropriate to say the Holy Spirit was there. But we have to be honest and to admit that it isn't easy for us to imagine the Holy Spirit. He has no form that can be seen, no voice that can be heard. And it's difficult for us to associate a being without bodily form. We can think of God the Father as a person, someone who cares for us and provides for us. We can think of Jesus as a person because he is a historical figure. But it's far more difficult to think of the Holy Spirit. It's hard to picture him. His workings in our lives are inward and secret, and the illustrations of his working in fire and wind are mysterious forces. And so it's not easy to think of the Holy Spirit as a person. But that is something we must do. And five times in one verse, Jesus referred to the Holy Spirit in terms of him and he. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives in you and will be with you. And the whole of the New Testament talks of the Holy Spirit in personal terms. As somebody who can be resisted, as somebody who can be grieved, as somebody who can be lied to, and so on. The second thing is the Holy Spirit is pure. He is a Holy Spirit. And there are many other spirits at work in our world. Alcoholic spirits, a person becoming intoxicated with the drug of alcohol will invariably change their behavior. And of course, we see it on our streets regularly every weekend with the binge drinking. But if anybody wants to have a really good time, you don't turn to the bottle, you turn to the Holy Spirit. And of course, Paul says, do not be drunk with wine, which leads to debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit and speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. 
And then there are psychological spirits that are at work in our world. The spirit of one man getting hold of another one and manipulating them in such a way that he can almost get them to do whatever he wants. We call it mass hysteria, a technique to whip people up into a frenzy. Sometimes you see it at pop concerts. We can look back and see it at Hitler's mass gatherings. And the bigger the crowd, the better the technique works. You can even see it in religious events when irresponsible church leaders will sometimes try and work something up. But the Holy Spirit is somebody who comes down from God to impact his people. And then, of course, there are demonic spirits, evil spirits that people contact through dabbling in the occult and the Ouija board and going to seances and so on. Something that the Bible clearly forbids because our lives can end up being really scarred as a result. There is only one pure spirit, one Holy Spirit that can actually give us pure thoughts and enable us to live holy lives before God. Other spirits at work in the world make people aggressive, argumentative, irresponsible, and even evil. And thirdly, he is powerful. Because the word spirit in Hebrew There are two words, actually. Neshama, which means quiet, almost imperceptible breathing that you're all doing now. And then there's the word ruach, which is noisy, loud wind. And that's the word that's used of God whenever it's describing his energy and power. And, of course, the Greek word for spirit is pneuma, a word that we talk about in context of air in motion, pneumatic powerful forces being used to do great things. And so the Holy Spirit is both pure and powerful, a lovely combination, because you get leaders who are very powerful, but they're not often pure and considerate. So the Holy Spirit is a wonderful person, someone to be encountered, someone not to be afraid of. And so we come to the aspect of the spirits in our lives, and I've been given the title led by the Spirit. And the first reference you get to this in the Scriptures, of course, is in Matthew 4, where the Scriptures record, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. We're not told how Jesus was led by the Spirit, but we can ask, why would God lead Jesus by his Spirit to be tempted? God, by his Spirit, will lead each of us at different times into difficult situations. Why would he do that? Not to weaken our faith, but to stretch our faith, and eventually to strengthen and deepen our faith. There's a very interesting word in Deuteronomy chapter 8 where Moses is reflecting on their experience in the desert, and he says to the people of Israel, Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years to humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart. And we don't really know what's in our heart until we are placed in the crucible of testing, suffering, and difficulty. It's so easy to be a fair-weather Christian and sail along with God when things are going tough. But when life goes against you, It's so easy 
to opt out of the Christian faith. And I've had people say to me, I tried religion and it didn't work. And what they mean is, I didn't have an easy ride. And so Jesus, in identifying with us, was led by the Spirit to be tested in the wilderness. And this encounter with the devil was no mock battle. In becoming human, Jesus laid aside, amongst other things, his immunity to temptation. It's interesting that James tells us in his letter, God cannot be tempted. But when Jesus in God became man, he was tempted. He actually made himself vulnerable to the temptations of the evil one. And he was led by the Spirit to be tempted in three particular ways which impact our lives as well. First of all, when he'd been spiritually blessed immediately after Jesus had been baptized. He went straight from the waters of the Jordan into the wilderness, straight from hearing the approval of God to the assault of the devil, straight from the Spirit of God descending upon him like a dove to walking straight into Satan who came at him like a roaring lion. And very often that's when we find we are tested. After we've had a great spiritual experience, after we've been flying high, the enemy comes in and seeks to pull the rug from underneath our feet. Secondly, when he was completely alone. As far as we know, Jesus endured this time of testing under the influence of the Spirit when he was without the disciples around him. No one there to influence him. Some of our severest temptations come when we are alone. When Satan would say, you know, you can do this because nobody is ever going to know about it. Nobody will ever discover what you have done. And also when he was physically weak. So often Satan comes in when we are feeling down and out. Jesus had been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. And as well as feeling hungry, he would be feeling very weak. The desert can be scorching hot during the day, but bitterly cold at night, all of which tends to bring down your resistance and lower your resolve so that you struggle to fight off negative feelings. And Satan so often comes to tempt us when we've had a major disappointment, when we've had to cope perhaps with a serious illness, a personal tragedy or sudden bereavement. The devil loves to capitalize on our own vulnerability. And he will whisper all sorts of insidious thoughts into our minds and he will say, what's happened to the God in which you've placed your trust? Perhaps he's not there after all. Or if he really loves you, he wouldn't allow this sort of thing to happen to you. And so the devil will come at us when we're feeling weak. And for reasons best known to God, he will lead us into testing times which will discover the root of our faith. Now we come to the Spirit's leading in the book of Acts. And there are several actions when, or several occasions when the Holy Spirit was leading and directing those early apostles. Acts chapter 6 is an interesting one. The religious leaders opposed Stephen, and he gave a powerful defense. Luke records 
these men began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against his wisdom or by the spirit by which he spoke. And he went on to speak with incredible wisdom, and they couldn't stand against him. He was being led by the Spirit to give a very powerful talk, which is a clear reminder of a promise that Jesus had earlier given to his disciples. When you are brought before synagogues, rulers, and authorities, do not worry about what you will say beforehand because the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you will say. And that's a wonderful promise. And there are going to be times in life when we're in a corner But we can cry out to the Holy Spirit and he'll give us the wisdom and he'll lead us through. At the moment, we're having quite a battle in Jerusalem with our Muslim neighbors. And in the end, we had to go to court. And I've been in a Jewish court twice during the last two weeks. And we were praying this particular passage that the Holy Spirit would lead us and give us the wisdom we needed when dealing with the authorities. Mind you, I've never been in a court like it. It was chaotic. There were three lawyers all shouting at once, and the judge was trying to make herself heard. Uh, A bit like the Knesset sometimes, when I've seen people dragged out by their ties. That's the Jewish temperament. Then we come to Acts chapter 8. When Philip was involved in a major mission in Samaria, he was told to leave the crowds and go down to the desert. And then when a chariot came that way, we read, the Spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. So how did he know it was the Holy Spirit and not just his own imagination? Did he hear an audible voice? Was it an inward conviction? What did he experience? Acts chapter 10. When Peter was in Joppa, God gave him a vision, and we're told while Peter was still thinking about the vision, The Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. And later, when Peter was reporting to the leaders in Jerusalem about the significant event of going to the Gentiles, he said, the Spirit told me to have no hesitation about going with them. So how did Peter know it was the Holy Spirit? And how did the Spirit lead him and communicate with him. Acts chapter 13, verse 2. Before Paul and Barnabas set off for their first missionary journey, Luke records and sets the scene for us. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said to them, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. How did the Holy Spirit communicate that message to the church. And two verses later, it says, the two of them sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. So the activity of the Holy Spirit is very much alive, directing the apostles to do things. But this is a particular interesting incident because not only did Paul and Barnabas have the conviction that the Spirit was sending them, but the Spirit gave that same commission to the church. And it's very important that those two things come together because some individuals will say, the Spirit is leading me to do this. 
or the Spirit is leading me to do that. But it's very important to share that with the church to see whether the church has the same conviction. Otherwise, we end up with too many loose cannons, uh, people going out doing their own thing without the support of the church. And then come to Acts chapter 13. When Paul was in Cyprus, Luke records, filled with the Holy Spirit, he looked straight at Elymas and said, you're a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You're full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You're going to be blind, and for a time you'll be unable to see the light of the sun. Incredible incident. Imagine it happening today. Paul was led by God's Spirit to discern that this man was evil and then to pronounce a powerful judgment on him so that he became blind. Acts chapter 16. Paul and his companions traveled through the region of Phrygia and Galatia. And in verse 6 it says, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. And so in some way, which isn't explained, the Holy Spirit prevented them from going into the province of Asia. Then if you look at the very next verse, Dr. Luke adds another intriguing statement. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So how did that happen? Then in Acts 20, when Paul said goodbye to the elders from Ephesus who met him at Miletus, it reads, And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prisons and hardships are awaiting me. So in every city, the Holy Spirit was warning him, telling him, and leading him as he went on that he was going to suffer difficulties and hardships. But his overriding concern is not to survive, willing even to lay down his life for the cause of the gospel. And a final one in Acts 21, while... Paul was staying with Philip and his four unmarried daughters. There was a man called Agabus who came as a prophet, and he took hold of Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, The Holy Spirit says, In this way the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. I've gone through those passages particularly indicating how the Holy Spirit was leading those early apostles. He was speaking, he was teaching, he was sending, he was commissioning, he was preventing them from doing certain things, he was compelling them to do certain things, and he was even warning them about some of the difficulties they were going to walk into. So how did the Holy Spirit lead people then, and how does the Holy Spirit lead us now? Well, that's one of the leading questions I've asked in the sheet I was asked to prepare for, for your home groups. Did they hear an audible voice? Was it an inward conviction? Was it a consensus of opinion amongst the disciples? Was there a prophet who spoke? Was it the general wish and discernment of the church? It's very interesting because nowhere are we told exactly how it happened. But I want to press on to the two passages because time's going to beat me 
where the phrase again is used, led by the Spirit. Romans chapter 8, the passage that I read. And that key verse in verse 14 where it says, those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. I don't know if any of you have read the book Jekyll and Hyde by Robert Louis Stevenson. It's a classic. You may have seen it in film or on TV. And Dr. Jekyll is a respectable London doctor. He's kindly, he's religious, but in the course of some of his scientific research, he discovers a drug which changes him, if you know the story, into a repulsive little dwarf with horrible, evil inclinations. So he calls the dwarf Hyde. And in the person of Hyde, he commits all kinds of immoral and abominable acts. Yet Dr. Jekyll, for all the shame he feels, he finds himself totally addicted to this experience. And at one point, he struggles for two whole months to refrain from taking the potion again. But he finally weakens and does so. And this time, he commits a brutal murder of a distinguished London gentleman. Eventually, the evil side of his personality so dominates him that he finds himself totally locked into the character of Hyde. And in order to escape uh, from being arrested, he commits suicide. And when I read that story, I thought, yes, Robbie Lewis Stevenson is describing something that's a picture of us all. Because no matter how upright or religious we are, there's an evil nature within us causing us to surrender to evil things. And the more we give in to our evil nature, the less we're able to overcome it by our own, by our own willpower. So whether we like it or not, we're all victims of this moral schizophrenia, this inner battle between good and evil. And in the passage that I read to you from Romans, Paul highlights the fact that once we become Christians, we become acutely aware of these two natures wrestling within us. Our old nature inherited by Adam and the new nature given to us by God through the Holy Spirit. And both natures are capable of producing fruit. Our old nature produces horrible things, but the Holy Spirit within us, when he is at work, produces beautiful things. Isn't that amazing? We have real dignity as human beings, people made in the image of God. But we're also marked by depravity. All of us are capable of doing things that are out of character. And every now and again, we get shocked when maybe a Christian leader does something that is totally incompatible with being a disciple of Jesus. We're a strange and bewildering paradox. We're quite capable of the loftiest nobility, but also of the basest cruelty. We're able to behave in the image of God, but we're also able to behave like the animals from whom we're meant to be distinct. And so as human beings, we've created hospitals for the sick, homes for the disadvantaged, universities for learning, churches for worship. But we've also created torture chambers, concentration camps, gas chambers, nuclear bombs, chemical weapons for mass destruction. And it was Pascal, the French philosopher, who said, we are both the glory and the rubbish 
of the universe. So this is the battle that we fight as human beings, and we have to be realistic and face up to it. The old nature that we're born with, the new nature that we receive from Jesus, and they're in complete conflict with one another. And sometimes we know we have this battle raging within us, our new nature prompting us to do something, the old nature seeking to send us in a different direction. And how easy it is when we're facing up to this inward battle it is to give in to temptation. Or if we allow ourselves to be led by the Spirit, we can actually snap out of the temptation. And so Paul writes, those who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. And we never more demonstrate that we're being led by God's Spirit than when we produce good fruit in our lives. Which leads us to our final passage in Galatians chapter 5, where Paul again uses this expression, being led by the Spirit. He says, if you're led by the Spirit, you are not under law. And perhaps the key verses are in verses 16 to 18. Live by the Spirit, and you'll not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other. And we can all give in at any time to our sinful nature. And this passage spells out clearly what is involved. Paul lists 15 ugly fruits that can grow from the dark side of our evil nature even after we've become Christians, even after we've been on the road with God for many years. I'm going to read them. And as I read them, ask yourselves this morning, are any of these things beginning to surface in my nature and take control? Sexual immorality creeping into the church. Impurity and debauchery, crude and lewd behavior. Idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. Just beneath the surface of our lives are the seeds of everything in the soil of our sinful nature. And the ugliness of our old nature comes through so easily. I was working with an Arab in Jerusalem who's become a Christian, a delightful guy called Rami. We're now employing him as our garden in Jerusalem. And of course, he's been very bitter as an Arab towards the Jewish people, especially as he has a permit to live in Bethlehem and his wife and two little boys has a permit to live in Israel. And can you believe it? He has to go back every night behind the wall into Bethlehem, and he's not able to sleep with his wife and two little boys. He can only see them during the day. But he said, when I became a Christian, God gave me a real love for the Jewish people. But he said, since then, they've come into my farm, they've broken down my vines, and some of the Orthodox Jews have destroyed my fruit trees. And he says, the old nature in me rises up, and I want to hit back. And that can happen to any one of us. We can live according to our sinful nature. But if we're going to be led by the Spirit at times like that, we have to cry out to God 
to fill us with his spirit and to lead us into doing good things. And so if we offer our lives to the control of the spirit, there are nine beautiful graces that are going to speak of the wonderful life of Jesus that's been born within us. Let me read them slowly and please ask yourself if there are any of these things you need to be working on. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. All of this means if we allow ourselves to begin to think on things that are impure and sinful, we will find ourselves being dragged in that direction. But if we walk in step with the Spirit, if we cry out regularly for the Spirit to fill our lives, then beautiful characteristics are going to be formed in our lives. Let me close with a verse which for me has been key in my Christian experience in John 7, 37. Many of you will know it. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And Jesus said that if we came to him and drink, that streams of living water would flow from within our lives. And he said this of the Spirit, who those who believed in him were later to receive. And you know, the key of being filled with God's Spirit and being led by God's Spirit is to come regularly and humbly and to ask God to fill us. And the key verse there, or the key phrase, if anyone is thirsty, and in the Middle East context, it's if a person who's being hydrated in the, dehydrated in the desert, and they're desperate for water. And there are times in our spirit when we're empty and dry, and we need to cry out for God's spirit. And uh, I think of a tourist who was in the States and was thirsty and wanting a drink, and he came to a fountain, and he couldn't see how to make the fountain to work. There was no button to push. There was no tap to turn on. And he was heard to say, I thought in America they did things properly. And then he noticed a plaque at the bottom of the fountain. And it simply said, stoop and drink. And so he put his hands behind his back and he started to stoop. And he heard a little click because he intercepted a magnetic eye which operated an electric switch and all the water he needed came up. And he found in America they did things properly after all. But take that phrase, stoop and drink. Because as we kneel and pray and cry out to God for him to fill us with his spirit, he will. And he will lead us by his spirit. And we'll become more joyful in our worship. We'll become more effective in our witness and in our service. Amen. God bless you. Thank you.